Welcome to the Knox Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this is a blessing to you. Let's jump into the sermon. My name is David Bruner. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad all of you are here with us today. I want to offer a very warm welcome. As many of you know, this Advent, we are taking a look in our sermons at Advent and Christmas songs, some of the most beloved and popular and powerful Advent and Christmas songs in the Christian hymnal. And I want you to know that when Becca and I started putting this sermon series together, we came to the table and we thought, okay, what are the, what are the hymns we're going to talk about? And I came in with some of the absolute standards um, in the Dave Bruner canon. So I, the first one I suggested was this absolute banger of a hymn called Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. And I don't, I, yeah, we can have a smattering of applause for that. Um, I don't know if you were ever a fourth grade boy, but if you were, that was your favorite hymn at that point in your life, at least if you were me. Uh, and of course, I also suggested a hymn Becca talked about last week, Feliz Navidad, uh, by Jose Feliciano, which occupies a special place in my heart forever and ever because it was the hymn we used to irritate my mom and dad on the way home from Christmas worship many, many, many years in a row. So whenever I hear it, I'm transported to the back of a frozen minivan in Oak Park, Illinois, circa 1995. I proposed those to Becca and she put the kibosh on them. So instead, I'm gonna talk about a legit all-time um, hero of the Christmas Carol canon. And that's the hymn, What Child Is This? What Child Is This? Um, before I tell you a little bit more about that hymn, let's read some scripture. And before we do that, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit among us as we open your word and listen to its message. Help us to take it to heart and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The scripture reading for today is from the first chapter of Luke's gospel. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who is said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here am I, 
the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. The word of the Lord. Back when I was in graduate school, getting my PhD, I did a lot of teaching. And when I first started my journey as a teacher, I thought teaching was all about answers. I thought my role as the teacher was to have the right answers. I was the expert, I was the instructor, they were the students, they were the learners, and so the job, I thought, was to get those answers out of my brain and into their brains as quickly as possible. And as I grew as a teacher, as I gained experience and got a little bit better, I quickly discovered that my single-minded focus on answers had unintended effects. It actually prevented my students from learning. Students latched on to the right answer and they could repeat it well enough, but their understanding was superficial and rote. They couldn't explain what made the right answer right. They were like students who can only do a math problem on a calculator, but not with a pen and paper. They had the result, but not the process. The destination, but not the journey. The answer, but not the question. So what I discovered was that questions are some of the most powerful tools in any teacher's arsenal. If you read about Socrates, one of the most influential philosophers all the way back in ancient Greece, all he did was ask questions. He'd wander around and start conversations with anyone, and he would just ask question after question. To this day, there's still a well-known method of teaching called the Socratic method, where the instructor doesn't give any answers at all. They just ask question after question. It's a notoriously annoying method of teaching which is probably why Socrates was murdered. <laughs> Be that as it may, my point is, questions are powerful. Questions are immensely powerful. They revitalize the truth when it, question, when it threatens to become stale. They keep our eyes open when the truth threatens to become so familiar that we don't even notice it. Questions have power. Questions like the one the Virgin Mary asks the angel in our reading for today. How can this be? Questions like the one posed in the title of our hymn for today. What child is this? And today, I'm, I'm going to share with you a little bit about the history of this beautiful, powerful hymn. And then I want to ask three questions. Questions that emerge from the subject matter of the hymn and from the gospel we just read. Here are the questions. First, what child is this? What child is it that's lying in the manger? Second, how can this be? How can God become a human being? And third, what does this tell us about God? What does the Christmas story tell us about God's character? So we'll talk a little bit about the hymn, and then we'll talk about three questions. Let me begin by sharing a bit about this hymn and its history. What Child Is This is really a marriage of two things, the melody and the lyrics. And the melody is very old, and the lyrics are somewhat newer. The melody is a tune known as green sleeves. How many of you have heard of green sleeves? Okay, a few of us, not all of us. So 
we don't know who wrote Green Sleeves. Its author is lost in the mists of time. We know it was in use at least as far back as 1580. So it's several hundred years old. It was a popular and well-known melody in its day. It was sung um, at parties, even in bars, and it had a variety of lyrics written for it over the years. William Shakespeare even references the tune Green Sleeves in one of his plays, The Merry Wives of Windsor. So it was a pretty established piece of music. The words of What Child Is This are sung to the tune of Green Sleeves, but they weren't written until almost 300 years later. They were written in 1865 by an English man named William Chatterton Dix. William Dix was not a pastor or a minister. He spent his days as the manager of an insurance company in Edinburgh, Scotland. But his real passion was writing hymns and poetry. And the lyrics to our hymn for today emerged, as hymns so often do, from a period of really intense personal struggle and trial for him. When he was in his late 20s and early 30s, he went through a bout of poor health and he was confined to his bed for months at a time. And when he finally recovered, he wrote several different poems and hymns that are among his most famous, including What Child Is This? And interestingly, his lyrics were published separately. They, be, they became reasonably well-known, but it wasn't until several, several years later that someone had the idea to take his lyrics and set them to the tune of Greensleeves. And we don't know who that was. Another mysterious person lost in the midst of time. But something about the marriage of his words and that poignant, familiar melody really helps that hymn take off, and it became the song we know and love today. Part of the genius of the lyrics to this song is the way it takes the Christmas story, which is so familiar to many of us, though not all of us, and it asks questions about it. It dares to imagine that you're looking at this scene for the first time. And in fact, the first question I want to ask today about this hymn comes right from its title, What Child Is This? What child is this? Put another way, the question is, what makes Jesus so special? What makes Jesus so special? There have been billions of babies born in human history. There have been millions of Palestinians, thousands and thousands of rabbis. What makes Jesus special? By what right do we single him out thousands of years later for remembrance? What child is this? Our hymn asks the question and then it gives us its answer. This, this is Christ the King. It's the same answer we find in our passage from Luke for today. Jesus will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. It's the same answer we find in Paul's letter to the Colossians, where he says, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Out of all the human beings that have ever lived and died, only one 
was the son of God. Every other human being suffers an impaired relationship with God, marred and obstructed by sin and its consequences. Jesus lived and died in an unbroken relationship with God. His life was one long yes to the Father's goodwill. Out of all the people that have ever lived, Jesus was different. Now that idea may be familiar to you too, but just think for a minute about how bold, how astonishing that claim really is. Christians believe there's something different about Jesus than every other person that's ever walked the face of the earth. And from every other person that will ever walk the face of the earth. Scholars call this the scandal of particularity. The scandal of particularity, the idea that at one time, at one place, at one point in history, God came down to earth in a way that can't ever be repeated. Think about it. Jesus spoke Aramaic and not English or Japanese. He lived by the Jordan River and not the Seine or the Mississippi. He never used a printer or an iPhone and he never rooted for the bears. It's probably just as well, actually. Christians believe that the ultimate truth about God is not a mathematical equation or a universal political program, not a collection of abstract truths, but a person, Jesus, in his flesh and blood, in his Arab culture, in his familiarity with the customs and the world of the ancient Mediterranean, a person who was born, lived, and died in a particular place and time. Christians are people who are willing to put up with the scandal of particularity. So let me ask you again, what child is this? What child is this to you? Who do you see when you look in the manger? Christians are people who look at that helpless baby in a rough wooden crib 2,000 years ago and see not only the occasion for the giving of gifts and the singing of carols, not only an important historical figure, but God. God with skin on. God's redemptive love in the flesh. And if you've never believed in Jesus before or if you've fallen away from him during your journey through life, I want to encourage you this Advent season, renew your faith in him. Renew your faith in him because this child is Christ the King. That's the first question. Second question flows right out of it. If this child is the Messiah, how is that possible? How is that possible? When the angel greets Mary in the Gospel of Luke and he explains what God has in mind for her, she immediately gets a little confused. And you can't really blame her, right? This angel shows up and he says, Mary, hello. I know that you are a virgin. However, you are going to get pregnant. And she says, okay. And he says, you are going to have a baby, but the baby will also be God. 
And she says, excuse me, I'm sorry, can you explain how this will take place? It's a question I want to ask to God every once in a while. It's a question many of us want to ask God every once in a while. How is this possible? How can this be? Take a step back from the familiar story and notice all the impossibilities involved in it. Of course, there's the miracle. A virgin gets pregnant. That's significant. But there are even deeper issues. God becomes human. The eternal, transcendent, all-powerful God, the one who called the world into existence, the one who dwells in inaccessible light, that God becomes a little baby who needs to be fed and diapered and burped. You got to picture Mary with Jesus on her hip saying, oh, I'm so sorry, God always gets cranky after lunch <laughs> until he gets a burp out and then he's okay again. And then, of course, there's the most profound issue of all, which is Jesus suffers and dies. It's not an accident that William Dix invites us to look at the birth of Christ through the lens of his death. The lyrics to the song say, nails, spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me and you. Jesus' birth begins a journey. A journey that starts in the manger and ends at the cross. The extraordinary humiliation of public execution. God suffers. The most high is humiliated. How is that possible? On this point, some critics simply part company with Christianity. In the 1600s, there was a famous philosopher named Benedict Spinoza who rejected Christianity for precisely this reason. He famously said that God becoming human made as much sense as a square becoming a circle. It wasn't possible. And others agree, even down to the present day. When I um, was in high school, I had a wonderful teacher, Mrs. Young. First she became a mentor and then she became a friend and we stayed in touch for several years after I graduated high school. She was a wonderful woman, warm and kind and fiercely intelligent. And she was a very faithful Jew. She went to synagogue most weeks. And when I was 18 years old, freshman year of college, I was going through some questioning and so I wrote her an email. I said, Mrs. Young, why don't Jews believe in Jesus? It was a bit on the nose, uh, I must admit, in retrospect, for an 18-year-old, but she wrote me this long, thoughtful, gracious email, far more gracious than I had any right to expect. It's probably not the first time she'd been asked that question by a zealous Gentile. But what she said amounts to a concern with all the mysteries that I just talked about. The gist of it was that Jews don't really believe it's possible for God to squeeze himself down into one human being. That's just not how it works. That's not how God rolls. It's not possible. And I must say, if you talk to Jews and Muslims today, if you investigate the theological divergences between our tradition and theirs, many of them would probably say the same thing. Christians are people who see the incarnation as a mystery and not an impossibility. 
through the eyes of faith, we confess that God's glory and grandeur are not so great that he cannot also humble himself. His wisdom is not so wise that he cannot also become an unlettered child. His power is not so great that he cannot also become weak in the manger and on the cross. The limits to what God can do are finally set only by God's love. And God's love is powerful beyond measure. So let me ask you this morning, what do you think is impossible? What do you think is impossible? Is it the miracle of God's presence in a tiny little baby? Or is it something else? Maybe it's a relationship that seems like it will never be made right. Maybe it's a hurt or pain in the past that it feels like you'll never get over. Maybe it's the state of our country and our society, the greed and racism and violence. Whatever it is, I invite you to lay it before the Lord in this Advent season because the Lord has a way with impossible things. The Gospel of Luke says that nothing is impossible with God. And I believe it's true. And let me tell you, the fact that I'm standing here today delivering this sermon is proof of that. If you told 18-year-old me, the same one that emailed Mrs. Young, that someday I would be standing up here delivering this sermon, I would have told you that was impossible. God has a way with impossible things. Lay them before him this season and watch him work. And that in turn brings me to my third question. What does Jesus' birth tell us about God? A person's choices, what they do or don't do, tells us something about their character. And surely God's choice to become incarnate in Jesus tells us something about his character as well. What might that be? Once again, I have to say, William Chatterton Dix provides indispensable insight. His song asks, why lies he in such mean estate where ox and ass are feeding? In Jesus, God not only becomes human, but he becomes a particular type of human. He is not born in a palace, he's born in a barn, in mean estate. I don't know the last time you were in a barn, but I've been in one recently and they do not smell good. They smell like the animals that live there. He wasn't born in Rome, the capital of the world, or even Jerusalem, the city of David the king. He was born in Bethlehem, an insignificant part of the country. Jesus was born poor and powerless. And what this tells us is that God has a special affinity for those on the margins, the least, the last, and the lost. God loves everyone, of course, but he cherishes a special love for the poor and the vulnerable and those regarded as insignificant in the eyes of the world. As Jesus himself says later on in the Gospel of Luke, blessed are the poor. 
And as Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthians, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. Throughout scripture, we see God's special heart for the poor, the vulnerable, and the marginalized. But here in the birth of Christ, it's something more. We see God's identification with them. It's like God is saying, in effect, if you want to find me, look where the poor people are. Look where the people in trouble are. Look where the marginalized are, and you'll find me. You often hear people say that we serve the poor, we serve those in need out of Christ's command to love others. And that's exactly right. That's such an indispensable motive. It's such an important way that we obey Jesus. But there's another motivation too that I think is equally important. We're called to serve the poor because that's where we meet Jesus. As a Christian, I wanna be where Jesus is. And what he tells me is that he's at the margins. He's with the vulnerable. Sometimes I fall into this trap when I serve of thinking, okay, I have the light of Christ and I'm gonna go out there and I'm gonna share it with those in the darkness. But more often what I experience is the exact opposite. When I go and serve, I discover Jesus is already present among those I am serving. And my job is simply to acknowledge and serve him where he is. He's already present at Hesed House and at Loaves and Fishes. He's already present in Sisseton and in Lawndale. Our job is simply to affirm his presence among those in need. Mother Teresa, the Catholic saint who spent her life serving the poor and destitute in India, famously said that she did not serve the homeless or destitute. She served Jesus. Jesus in distressing disguise. Jesus hidden among the poor and needy. So I want to ask you finally, where in your life are you able to come near to those in need? Where in your life are you able to serve the poor, the helpless, the needy? Because when you do, I promise you will see Jesus in astounding ways. The birth of Christ tells us about God's heart for the poor and vulnerable. Friends, questions are powerful. We find them in this hymn and in the words of scripture. Let's sit with these questions long enough to let them really make a difference. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information on how to get connected here at Knox, please visit knoxprez.org.